Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available free of charge. More than 500 episodes and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just hey one Hey everybody, time. hello, right. how's it going? <laughs> right. Hi, this is Brad Listy, this is the Other People Podcast. I'm in Los Angeles, it's nice to be with you. I have Victoria Patterson on the program today. She's back on the program. For a second time, she was my guest all the way back in episode eight, nearly seven years ago. And she is now celebrating the publication of a new story collection. It is called The Secret Habit of Sorrow. It's available now from Counterpoint Press. It was so nice to see Tori. She's a buddy of mine. It's been too long. And yet I feel like we've been in touch and, uh, you know, sort of keeping track of one another. I know she listens to the show now and again and... It was just fun to get to sit down with her and catch up. And I should say, too, that she's one of these writers who just does the work and who has been consistently publishing great stuff for many years. And I just have this feeling that it's building up to something big. She deserves to be kind of a famous uh, celebrity in my mind. You know what I'm saying? I feel this way about a handful of writers who are just consistently really good and are also prolific and you just can't help but feel like people are going to eventually wise up. So, very happy for Tori to see her having the success. And our conversation is coming up in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to take a minute just to address last week's episode, episode 538, my conversation with Amber Tamblin. 
uh, it generated a huge response, and I heard from a lot of you, either on Twitter or via email, and I thought I would take a moment to just read some of the responses just because I found them interesting. Uh, you know, Amber's a really passionate and opinionated person and also very eloquent in expressing herself and expressing her feelings, uh, you know, her anger, her thoughts on uh, the injustices of the world. She's not afraid to talk politics. She's not afraid to talk gender. She's not afraid to talk uh, any of it. And it's just, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, a, a person that sort of demands a response. That's, a, that's kind of what it feels like, you know, when you, uh, when you talk to her. And I think that was the impression that I got from hearing from listeners. It sort of makes you sit up, uh, sit up at attention. And so uh, Adrian Todzaniga, a writer and the host of Literary Deathmatch and a past guest on this program, he tweeted, My all-time favorite Other People episode is officially Amber Tamblin. Somebody on Twitter who goes by the uh, name Declofanac <laughs> said, That was a good one. I listened to it when I picked my dog up from being neutered. Kathleen White tweeted, great podcast. Tessa Torgerson uh, tweeted, oh my God, with three Ds on God. Amber Tamblin on other people is fire. And she used a little fire emoji. You know what I'm saying? Somebody named Anna tweeted, I feel like I say this a lot, but this is truly one of the best episodes so far. I already knew both of these things from reading Dark Sparkler, but Amber Tamblin's anger, passion, and eloquence really came across in this conversation too. Uh, not all listeners were effusive. I did hear uh, some negative responses. A listener named Andy, I think, but he signed his email DM. It's it's confusing. Like in the email, like from in the from field, it said from Andy. But then when he signed his email, it said DM. So who knows who this person is? But uh, DM says, hey, Brad, I learned a lot from your recent episode with Amber Tamblin. I learned that she prides herself on policing art, on policing thought comedy, movies, and more. I learned that she even polices her husband's stand-up comedy. David Cross should be mortified that it is now known that his already funny, uh, already marginally funny work gets cross-examined and edited for sensitivity by his wife. I also learned that Tamblin thinks Bill Maher needs to, quote, address his deep-seated racism, end quote, following an unsavory joke, and that she thinks Louis C.K. is doing the right thing by, quote, just going away, end quote, but that she also gets very, very theoretical and sympathetic when it comes to Aja Argento. We need to look at, quote, hurt people hurting people. Right? What a double standard. Art should never be policed, Brad. Let readers, viewers, moviegoers, and listeners decide for themselves what is valuable. I've listened to virtually all of your episodes, and I've never heard a worse advocate for her own ideas and work than Amber Tamblin. Cheers, DM. So this is a lot to unpack. I, I feel like the letter from DM, like, like it's weird because in the from field on the email, it was like from Andy, but then this person signed it DM. So clearly trying to hide identity, which when you're going to send a negative response, I sort of think that's bullshit. Like put your name on it. I almost didn't read it, but it's a pretty eloquent letter, even if it is kind of nasty. I, I, I just would take issue with this idea that Amber is presenting herself as the thought police. I don't think that's what she's about. I think she's just somebody who has put a lot of time and energy 
and thought into how she feels about these bigger issues of race, gender, class, whatever it is, you know, the big stuff, politics, all of it. And, you know, is maybe talking about art through that lens, you know, talking about artistic expression and, you know, feelings of responsibility that she has and that she thinks we we all should have in terms of how we present. And you know what? There are cultural standards. They're always evolving and hopefully for the better. I mean, I think in the Trump era in particular, we've seen the, the discourse be degraded and we've seen a lot of nutcases feel empowered to say hateful things and stupid things in the public square and whatnot with impunity, including the president, maybe most especially the president. So, you know, I I would just say that it's really hard to talk well about this stuff and to present one's thoughts and opinions with eloquence and with uh, moral clarity. And I'm not saying that Amber bats a thousand or that I bat a thousand, like definitely not me, but um, I think we need people who are willing to engage. And you know what? We need people of differing opinions. It's hard and it's emotional and it clearly, in, you know, engenders emotional responses from people across the, across the board. Like clearly whatever Amber was saying touched a nerve with uh, Andy slash DM. You know, in a way that feels gendered to me. Like there's something very male about the response. Nah, you know, I don't know. It's hard. Hard to talk about. Hard to talk about extemporaneously. But that's the responses that I got. Here's the here's the big takeaway. It was a great episode. I love episodes that engender those kinds of responses. That means that the conversation was provocative and interesting and intelligent and passionate and for, uh, you know, confusing even, you know? That's the kind of the way I all, I often feel. Like, wait, well, what do I think? How do I feel? I'm not sure. You know, and I never really get fully off of that because my, uh, I don't know, I just have like this muddied view of things or I, I can never really uh, get 100% clear. But it helps me move in that direction, shall we say. And it helps me work things out and calibrate. And so I'm grateful to everybody who listened, whether you loved it or you hated it. I'm uh, especially grateful to Amber for coming over and sitting down across from me and bringing such uh, energy uh, to the conversation and and such courage too, because it does take courage, I think, to express oneself about those issues um, in such an opinionated and forceful way. You're sort of opening yourself up to all of, you know, all kinds of criticism, but also, you know, all kinds of people who feel a sense of relief and exultation, you know, that someone's out there speaking, um, you know, speaking for them with that kind of energy. So episode 538, if you haven't heard it, listen to it for yourself. And uh, if you want to let me know what you think, feel free to uh, tweet at me at other PPL, or you can email me. The address is letters at other PPL.com. 
Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. My guest, once again, today is Victoria Patterson. She has a new story collection out from Counterpoint. It is called The Secret Habit of Sorrow. It is getting rave reviews. Like pretty much all of her books get rave reviews. It's just kind of what happens. So, a uh, great time hanging out with Victoria Patterson, and I'm pleased to share that conversation with you right now. Well, someone gave me a candle from this place, and, and I've kind of gotten a little obsessed, but you you meditate over it and and light it, and, um, and then you're supposed to leave it lit and maybe put it in a bowl of water. And um, all your energy from praying over these things will will go down to the stones that are at the bottom. Okay. And then once that happens, you, you peel the s- stones out of the wax, and then they have your energy in them. Wow, and then you eat them? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> you snort them? And you grind them then up. You, and you just put them. I have mine in a little on a little plate okay. next to my my bed. All and right. so, um, but you do not blow out the candle. I'm this warning is you. yeah. This is what so. we were talking about before we came on. I, I you know if you blow the candle out, then you lose all the the good juju. Yeah, and I made that mistake my first candle. I just oh. kept blowing it out because I don't know about leaving it lit. But now I leave them. I'm I'm able to leave them lit and move move around. Does it, is it a scented candle? Is there some sort of like? It smells a little weird. Does it? So, yeah, little, <laughs> little gasoline smell. I like the smell of gasoline. <laughs> yeah, you know, a little it different, but not 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 super bad. Okay, but not like the typical like floral. No, or no, like no. sandalwood. No, or... no, you can't smell it right now, huh? It's not smelling. I have a bad sense of smell, but we'll get there over the hour. The candle will be burning throughout the hour, and then it's yeah, like a, it's like this a tall, one especially for you. Well, I appreciate it, and it's a tall, so people can get a visual. It's like a tall cylindrical glass uh, candle, like holder, and so you're not allowed to blow it out, which means. You've got to use like a wet paper towel or your fingers, but getting down in there... That's when you use a wet paper towel okay. if you're leaving the house. Okay. Because um, I'm superstitious. I will not blow that thing good. out. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. That was upsetting to me when I was blowing it out. And then I finally read the fine print and it was like all caps, do not blow out. Right. So okay. I made I made that mistake. It's going to open some roads. Yeah. Let's I was hope. thinking of your work. and Right. Yeah. I really feel like this is the thing. 
Well, I've been working hard. You've been working hard. You, you're prolific. You get books done. You just churn them out. You've always got, you're very generative. You've always got something to say. How do you do it? Um, I really don't do anything else. I, I, that's how I think about it is I don't cook. I don't hike like you. I don't, I don't really do much of it. I just read and write and, and, um, it's the, it's the thing that, but you I, do. Yeah. So it's like, and, and input equals output. You read a ton. I read a ton. When I, do you read? Do you read before you write or after you write? I read after I write or at night. And then if I'm working on, um, I'll read everything in service to what I'm writing. So for the, you know, but what does that mean? Does that mean you're reading novels or fiction that is of a similar vein? Yeah. It is. Or nonfiction. Or, or non. Terms. Yeah. Because some people, they work on novels and it's like, I only read nonfiction when I'm working. Or some people are like, I don't read anything when I'm into a book. Yeah. Other people, they read before they write so that they can kind of sort of get a, a little bit of juice or something. And then other people are like, no, that distracts me. I read after or like before bed to fall asleep. Like, I guess everyone has their own little yeah, system. Yeah, everyone has their own thing. But I kind of enter that zone or that world or that dreamlike state so that everything I'm, I'm doing or thinking or even watching on TV seems to feed into what I'm working on. You taking notes? I take a lot of notes. You do? I have, I journal almost every day. And then I also have, um, notebooks where I just take notes. Okay. So especially when I'm working. Okay. And and this is what you do. Like, like you say, like you don't do, you don't have any other hobbies really. Um, not really. Okay. So what does a day look like for you? Well, now it's kind of a little different because, or my book is out and I'm a little flatlined, but a typical day, even now, I'm lucky I have this thing. I have a readership over at the Huntington Gardens, which is amazing. I love that place. Yeah. So I'm able to go there to work. Really? Yeah. What what does this mean? It means I applied for a readership. What's Uh, a readership? It's where you're doing, I should be quiet about this because a lot of people. Yeah, right. But But, by the way, for people who have not been to Los Angeles, I think it's one of the top five coolest places in LA. That's really great. Like Huntington Gardens is super gorgeous. Oh my God. (laughs) Lucky you. Pasadena's got some charm. Like there's a lot of beautiful old homes over there. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely place. It's the city of trees. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, so I'll go, I go there to work and I actually do that thing now where I dress up a little cause I'm going out. I think it, who was that, that did that one of the, well, the Robert old... Caro, oh, the guy who wrote the, uh, the Lyndon Johnson, like five part uh, biography, like, uh, or the guy that just passed away that, that you like his work. He wrote that big tome. Um, oh, well, I'm trying to think of who it would have, would have been. Um, Gore Vidal. Oh, Gore yeah, Vidal, right? yeah. He would always he was, dress up. Yeah, he was a sharp dresser. I guess there were a bunch of them that do that. But he was also, like, Gore Vidal. Like, I feel like Gore Vidal at his best, if he was on your side, yeah. <laughs> if he liked you, yeah. was, like, super fun. And, like, so funny. And just uh, lacerating wet. But, man, if if he put you in the crosshairs. It's kind of like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But I also, like, I read a biography of him and I didn't realize a, a couple things on him. Like, I read this biography and didn't realize how intense his drinking problem was. Yeah. But then I also went to see him late yeah. in his life here in Los Angeles. Uh, Tim Robbins, you know, he, Tim Robbins has some sort of acting thing, like some sort of He's school. That, yeah. Like, I, I think it's called like Actors Gang or something. Yeah. But he, I think it was a fundraiser for that. And they had a little theater down in Culver City. And it was like Gore Vidal, an evening with Gore Vidal. And it was right during the Iraq war, like that time, George W. Bush. Yeah. And uh, Gore was there and they wheeled him down 
you know, in his wheelchair and he was hammered. Oh, wow. Hammered. And like, it was just sort of sad. Yeah. I mean, there were some funny moments, but it was also like, wow, this guy's just... But did he look good? Did he have a three-piece? Uh, yeah. I mean, he was like fully dressed. He had like, you know, the nice wheelchair. He even had like a nice wheelchair. That's what I'm doing. I'm, yeah. It's all caving in inside. But... I'm always fascinated by like, like Larry Flint had like the, the gold wheelchair, you know. Ooh. People start to get into like the design of their wheelchair. But I guess that's cool. And uh, so anyway, I, I feel like when he was at his best and he was in peak form, he was uh, really great as an essayist and just as like a, like a dinner companion. Right. A great gossip, a hilarious person and like right. a fun talker, but like also like mean as a snake. Huh. Right? Right. So, but anyway, yeah, him and then Robert Caro, I know who's still going. He, I think he's finishing the Lyndon I don't Johnson. Know his work at it's all. It's like the, uh, what's the, you've seen the books. It's like, um, it's all about Lyndon Johnson, five part, these like mega biographies, oh, okay. but they have won like Pulitzers <laughs> and National Book Awards. And he's at the very end. I want to say he's pushing 80. And it's like the Vietnam War and the end of the Johnson presidency. But he has an office, I want to say, somewhere near Central Park, and he puts on like a suit and tie. I think it's helpful to because you're going to work, you're presenting yourself. Or for me, because I used to write just in my bed, and um, but my back it started bothering my back. I use a stand up desk. Yeah, I know. I don't think I can do that. I'm not there yet, but um, just standing up all day. Yeah, I don't know. Standing up and typing or writing just seems so weird to me. But um, I actually like it. But you do. I'm weird. Yeah. I like being on because I have a bad back too, and I'm like I'm better on my feet. It's healthier. Right. And you know, like sort of like this candle, like you're not gonna blow it out. Right. As soon as I read that, like sitting is bad for you, I'm like I better not. You know, because I've spent my yeah. adult life sitting in a I chair. I always sit a lot. I try to get up and move around. Yeah, and that's a nice thing with the Huntington too. You can get up and walk around. So you have an office in the library? No, it's it's a readership. So you you do your research there, and um and you can you can leave your work and go walk around. There's a lot of guards, and they the downside is you can't bring a pen in because they don't want you to mark up anything, and they also check your bags when you leave so that you're not taking anything. So wait, you're you you're just there to do research. Basically, you can do whatever you want once you're in. So I'll, I've done some research, but I've also I just go there and work. Yeah. Or just go there and read. It's a library. Yeah. And so it's got like a regular it has, collection. It has an amazing collection. So I'll go there and I'll make myself work for a certain amount of time, and then I'll say, okay, now now you get free time. And so then I'll just wander the labyrinths of <sighs> uh, hallways, and I'll. Ch- find some art books or photography books and I'll just feed myself looking at whatever I want for however you know long I want and learning about new artists and reading essays. So they have an amazing library. And, um, um, for instance, I was looking at old photos of, um, the Macy's where I live used to be a Bullock's where my great grandma worked. Oh, when wow. She had to support her daughters cause her husband left her. So I wanted to see what that looked like. So I, or went into their system and found that they had all these old photos of the Bullocks when it was built. So I uh, put them on file and then I went in and you put on these gloves and they give you a magnifying glass and a little thing to prop the book, the pages in or, or some of them are laminated 
and you can just look at these old photos uh, and look at with the magnifying glass I these find, faces. I find old photos emotional. Oh, it's so emotional. Like even if like, especially if it's, uh, I mean, photos of places, but photos of people in particular. Oh, yes. And it doesn't even have to be people I know. No, because they're all dead. They're all, <laughs> You're just and like, they're <laughs> like, there's all the, the brown and black face people working there and all the white men. I'm, that are the CEOs and owners and this and that, and they're all dressed up and they're maybe in a photo together. It's, it's, you know, and then all the ladies with their dresses, the shop girls and, yeah. and, um, and their faces are just so individual, you know, they have these lives and, and like they're the, just gone. Some of Oof. it too, back in the day, they had style, like the, like the shop, yeah. the shop I would girls. Hate it Cause you'd have to wear girdles and uh-huh. all that stuff. So I mean, much work. It's I mean, like I'm, flight attendants too. Like back in the uh, day, you, I see some of these old vintage photos and I'm dang. like, what the hell happened? Yeah. My neighbor was a flight attendant and they used to follow her around with a scale. Oh, and if she plumped up a little, <laughs> she, she was done. <laughs> They need to bring that back. I want, uh, <laughs> want my flight attendants Brad. fit. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I do, I'm just, I was speaking more of just like the outfits and like, just how like, like, I feel like flying was more, it was obviously more of a novelty back in those days. Right. It was still, you know, somewhat new, especially commercial air travel, these big jets. And I think people sort of like space travel, there was still like this, like it, it was a big fucking, it should still be a big deal that we're sending Right, people out into space, but like once the people the space get space army or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is, yeah, we're sending our uh, soldiers out into space to, you know, know <laughs> colonize the moon or something. But um, no, flying is awful now. Flying, sure. yeah, I just flew and I it gets smaller and smaller. The space that you have and it smells in the plane. Uh, there was this smell. I was like, what is that? It's people eating smelly oh, food and ejecting it. Yeah, right. injecting it and then also or poop, or farting. <laughs> yeah, because it's loud on those planes. People don't care. It was bad. It's the like smell. yeah, oh, and they don't clean them. I don't think they could do it. You know, especially when they're you're turning around. You know, they they empty a plane of passengers and then they clean it real quick and then you get on and you fly back. It was back. awful. Yeah, it was like t- two nights later. I could still smell that smell. <laughs> it's <sighs> like I've been I've been off the plane for this long, but why do I still remember that smell so vividly? It's it was yeah. Awful. Well, I, you know, there's a D, I mean, it's a, it's amazing that you can be on one side of the country and, you know, within yeah, five yeah. hours be on the other. So there is it's something too much. I can't deal with that. It's yeah. Crazy. So it's like pretty fucking cool, but it's also dehumanizing in a lot of ways. Like from the moment you get there and go through security to the moment you get on the plane and stuff yourself into your seat and you know, your co-passengers or whatever, like sharing your armrest and yeah. it's just, it's a lot to cope with. It's a little bit stressful. I just think about the people eating because I know how that I, kills you. I would go. I would go into this. But I did I fe- eat on the plane. But <laughs> I didn't go. I didn't go crazy. But listen, you can have some like almonds or something. I'm talking about hot food that has an odor. <laughs> there's a. There's a. There, I'm just advocating for a bit of consideration. I always have ginger ale because I used to be the kind of person who would fly and always throw up. Yeah. I'd get on the plane and I'd actually say to the person. I'm sorry, but at some point I might have to throw up. I was that bad. Into the bag? Yeah, so I'd have the bag oh, ready. <laughs> I, if, if I were your co-passenger, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to uh, take the next flight. But I don't do that. I'm good now. I don't throw up. Yeah. But at this time, the way home, I thought, oh, man. My buddy has... Ginger ale, please. My buddy's son uh, is very like sensitive and pukes on every flight. Like He's got a kid. That makes me feel better because I had, it was me. I was I was like that. I was that kid. Just like very sensitive. Well into my teen, teen years. Oh, and so this is something you grew out of as an adult. 
Yeah, and I and as an adult, I would make myself fly anyway because I really don't want to be an agoraphobic, you know, not person that doesn't get out. So I make myself do stuff that is uncomfortable. But it, there was a time when I would get on a plane and I just know, okay, well, it's give happen. me the bag. But you push, you just push through it by forcing yourself to do it. Yeah, I'm not going to not go. Is, is your inclination to just like be in your routine, right from bed or from the office or whatever it mm-hmm. is, and just not deal with? anything else right I, I get that that's very yeah to be the to be in the world is i think very scary so i'd rather just do you like to go shopping no nothing who likes to go shopping i don't know i, I don't, don't like to go shopping I'll, i go and yeah if you get into like a little just a daze and go shopping i like to listen to podcasts while i go grocery shopping yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So it's like my husband does the grocery shopping. Well, so I do the grocery shopping uh, for us. Oh, the, yeah. And uh, I've also gotten paranoid. Like I also gas our cars up sort of compulsively. I oh, have this, so it won't go empty. Well, like I don't even want it to go to ha- like if it gets to half, I gas it up because <laughs> I'm like, if the shit hits the fan in this city, oh. if there's an earthquake or like the power grid goes down, oh, you're giving me a new thing. To- I'm like, I'm getting the fuck out, and I don't want to. I want my, especially if it's my wife and kids. I'm like. I don't want you to run out of gas. Because like, I'm like that with my cell phone. It has to be at 100%. I plug it in and my kids are, you know, or my husband say, mine's at 7%. What's yours at? It's at 98. But okay. wait till it gets to 100 and then you can have yeah. the charger. Because I did not get enough love as a child. My love <laughs> cup was down a little. So I need my phone to reflect that I'm always full. Well, I... Like, that makes all, no sense but no but just, i get it because like just to be functional during the day you want to have a full charge when you wake up in the morning yeah just at all times it should be as close you know i mean i burn i burn through i have like a, one of i'm these, getting better at i have it, one of these shells that you uh oh. put on that's like an extra battery so i have 200 percent to burn through every oh day oh my god but my wife does not plug her phone in overnight that's kind of like my husband and i'm like care. what are you doing she got a lot of love as a kid yeah while so. you're sleeping plug your phone in and she just doesn't do it. And so she's constantly like... Do you like, plug it in for her? No, I plug mine in. Oh, you make sure yours is okay. Like in my bedroom, like my nightstand, yeah. like if you look at our it's bed... It's separate. My nightstand on one side is very yeah. neat and orderly. Oh. The phone is plugged in. Right. It's like the books are stacked. On my wife's side, it's like there's an avalanche of shit. Yin and yang. Yin and yang. That's it's good. like Ozzy and Harriet or whatever. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, anyhow, uh, congrats on your new book. Thank you. And are you right now in like this one of these lulls where you're sort of like gearing up to write the next thing? Um, I have been again. I, I always need to be working because it's kind of how I survive or feel at home in the world. But I'm a little flatlined, and that's from the the last novel. And this one was these stories. Some of them are really old and. 15, 10 years old that I've been rewriting forever. And so... Um, you rewrite the same story or, yeah. the, or a novel for like a decade? I, I With this one, I did. And I have a writer's group. And some of these stories have gone through the writer group channel multiple times to just hone them and get them, get them where they need to be. And that helps you? Yeah. Like, so you have a, a writer's group that meets what, like monthly? Right now, it's sort of disbanded because of the summer, but at, a, at our best, we'll meet monthly for sure. And everybody like reads each other's pages yeah. and like you can, you use them as a barometer. How many people is it? Four. So four of you and you... like Including if, me, four, yeah. How do you know, I guess based on feedback from them, that's when you start to realize you've got something? 
Oh yeah, they're I just have so much respect for them as writers and their work and they're so smart and so um Who are they? It's Dana Johnson, uh-huh. Danzy Senna and Sarah Shanlene Bynum. Okay. And we're all very different writers, so, which is works really well. And so um yeah, I listen when they talk, believe me. Then I need to get into a podcast group. Ooh. Me and three other podcasters <laughs> listen to each other's You monologues. guys would just be talking all the time. It'd <laughs> be a nightmare. It wouldn't work, I don't think. <laughs> Is my monologue good? Is it ready? <laughs> Ugh. But you get, I, I, you know, I envy that. I think that's probably, probably smart. It's very helpful because it's, because a lot of it too is just a companionship and mm-hmm. camaraderie and cheering on and yeah, you can do it. You, we, I want to read your work. I want to read your novel. You this know? doesn't suck. Yeah. This doesn't suck. Or even if it sucks, that's okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's that nurturing. It's that nurturing so that I could, I can go there and and say something really stupid and they're not going to say you're out. Yeah. Done. Yeah. It's a you're safe space. You're not as smart as we are. Right. Flick. <laughs> you're done. Uh, is there a pattern that you can, uh, def- that you can like locate in terms of how your books tend to come together? Like uh, in terms of like gestation period, in terms of how many drafts you do, in terms of how the process unfolds? I think each, each is different and, um, and it just takes so much time and work and so, so much energy, which is probably why I'm remiss to even start anything or even think about anything right now that's going to be a long-term project because it just takes so much energy and um, concentration. When you're in it, are you working every day? Yeah, I'll try to work or I'll think about it every day You know, if I'm not able to work every day. And everything that takes me away from it um, is a hindrance or I get resentful, you know, family things or even good things, a needing, wedding or needing to eat, like needing like, to uh, eat, yeah. needing, yeah. Needing to feed other people, that kind of thing. And, um, so yeah. So what does a work day look like? Like when you're in it, what does it look like? Um, I'll try, I try to work, uh, in the morning and get it done be, so that I don't think about it the rest of the day. And then I can do other things for the rest of the day. So, uh, two or three concentrated hours, but I'll let myself journal before I buckle down and work on the serious work. So I let myself just, um, be free on the page beforehand. I think that's really been, um, instrumental to my work is the journaling. Just getting out like the, like you have to sort of like get out the, the garbage. Everything. And then two. So I've been journaling since really since, second grade really and it's and just so, like pouring out like the like is it like this is what i'm doing today this is what's bothering it's me whatever you want whatever you want yeah and some but i i think as i've as the years have gone by i'm more conscious of what i'm journaling because i'm more aware that when i go back because i go back and look at them and i'll actually get details or things that happen and if i'm writing something that t- took place in 1994 i'll go back and read my journals from that time because oh it'll have God. cultural details or things that you can't just get on wikipedia right or things that i wasn't i didn't have my writer hat on so i wrote something and expressed it in a way that i wouldn't have been able to capture had i been trying so i'll find little nuggets and tidbits and and um just gold mines sometimes is it ever like what the fuck is going on in these pages well yeah so that's why i think now i'm so aware of um 
that the the stuff about oh I'm scared oh I'm neurotic oh I can't sleep I didn't sleep oh I ate this that that stuff's really boring so I try to write about the world around me so like I'll go home or I'll journal tomorrow and write about you know your the daddy I love you thing on your thing right. on your and I'll write about details in the room or I try to to look outward rather than just have it always be inward, inward, inward. I try. Right. But a lot and of times it's... By the way, for people listening, the Daddy the daddy I Love You thing that Tori was referencing is the uh, the belly shirt that I'm wearing. It's emblazoned <laughs> across the chest. It's actually a drawing my it's daughter did. It's a tattoo. <laughs> I have Daddy I Love You tattooed on my... Uh, forehead. On my forehead. Um, so, okay. So you get up in the morning, like crack of dawn or you No, just... I'm a late... My whole family, my sons, my... My husband, we're all late nighters, so I'll wake up. And lately, I, because I think ever since Trump, I've been doing yoga every morning and meditating at night just to withstand the weirdness. So. You know, it's worth talking about the mental health aspects of, mm. of the last couple of years, the last year and a half. Like, it really does take a toll. And I feel... It's like, to be really honest, like, I feel it for sure. And I, I know that it's having some sort of... Uh, diminishing effect on my energies and on my psyche. But like, I also feel pretty strong. Like I'm nowhere near quitting. I'm happy to keep up with the news. I, I feel like fighting. Like right. that's kind of like, and, and I also have like, like I, I, I talk on this show sometimes about how I'm not a competitive person and I'm not, but when it comes to shit like this yeah. with like a tyrant like that, that's where I'm like, you're not going to beat me. Like that's where it comes out. Like someone like that, um, I'm like, I'll take every punch you throw. Like, that's kind of how I feel about it. Right. And so, uh, I don't know, but I also do a lot to maintain like exercise, meditate. Right. Like I don't, I'm doing things that are self-care like, um, oriented every day. And I think absent that it might be harder. Right. I try to be like that, but I, I really have some moments where I'm just so shaken in terms of maybe believing that in karma and stuff like, cause it just, it's really really shaken me in terms of beliefs and questioning things. But again, like I've been sober a long time and I'll, how long you been sober? I'm coming up on 29 years, which is crazy. And congrats. Yeah. And so part of me feels really withered and, but, but fuck no, I'm not letting this guy, I'm not going to drink over it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to let this be the thing. Right. But I feel very, um, defeated and shaken and, at the same time. So yeah, I have to do a lot of self care. Um, but you're sort of like me, like you, or at least we have some, uh, uh understanding of the, uh, the quote unquote, the other side of the political spectrum. Right. Um, or from not even quote family unquote members. from family yeah. members. Cause like I have roots in the South. I have a lot, a ton of family members who probably voted for Trump or right. not even probably they did. Right. Um, and I haven't, I haven't seen my family since the election, I saw them right before it. And I remember like sounding the alarm being like, don't do it. But there's only so much you can say, because it's like, you know, there's some of them, they're your elders. Right. I don't want to get into it. And I don't want to get into a pissing match over this with like my aunt, you know? Whereas for me, it's been, I've, my brother and my father were both promise keepers. Do you know what that is? Bill McCartney of the Colorado Buffaloes. Right. That was his thing. And, and for people listening, can you describe it? You describe it. It's like, okay, Bill McCartney was the football coach, like a hyper Christian football coach when the university of Colorado was in its heyday in the like late eighties, early nineties. And after he finished coaching, he got involved in this thing called the promise keepers 
which was basically about how traditional gender roles in the household as as dictated by the bible were to be upheld so that the family structure could be strengthened and maintained and it but it basically was is kind of misogynistic yeah well it was like yeah men are the leaders women are the, you know, the rib thing and i i just remember at the time women weren't even allowed in the stadium they were like they have to wear dresses and sell the snacks outside i mean you know so yeah so there's so, something there's something weird happening and with it's the gender. this bo- weird bonding male thing and so i kind of i just grew up in this family where it was um where my dad especially was the fundamentalist uh family values christian and so i i kept quiet for a long time and and um for me, now is the time that I can't be polite or quiet anymore. So it's really disrupted um, my family life. With and I've had conversations with my mother and my brother and my. This is my birth family, you know. This is um, fundamental to who I am, and some really uncomfortable um, conversations. I had the last one with my dad, where I just had to to let him because he was um, he had thought that I was writing him off. And so I felt that I owed it to him to at least explain why I can't talk to him right now. And I, I just can't um, pretend like he or do this thing where I swallow this idea that he's some moral authority if he's going to support a president that is, is uh, you know, actively just this horrible everything that antithetical to what jesus right i just can't do it so i had to really let him know why and and my mom and i have had some really hard conversations and my is she on board with trump too she says she didn't vote and i don't know i don't know she might have voted i don't know and then my brother who i'm really close with but he's never read any of my work he's like 18 months old 18 20 months older than me and he you know, I couldn't talk to him after the election. And it's still, um, it's still hard for me to talk to him. And he, when we finally talked, he told me that he had, he hadn't voted for Trump. He'd written in Ronald Reagan. And I burst out crying. I was so relieved. Well, my parents, my parents, uh, my, my mom's a registered Democrat. My dad has been a registered Republican my whole life. He voted, I mean, he like, he voted for Jerry Brown to be governor, but he usually votes for the Republican and the presidential and like he did not vote for Trump, yeah. And he unregistered as a Republican after Charlotte. I remember you talking about that. And it's like is, it's a good, it's a yeah. relief. It's a re- I feel relief, yeah. you know. And I also, you know, it, the thing about it, and this is the case that I would make to anybody who is in the Trump camp, is that it's really not about conservative or liberal. Uh, it's about our sovereignty it's about decency and decency. Yeah, it's like these and things aren't really. And- I, I'm fine to have. Like, like, unlike some people who are more liberal, liberal in their leanings, like I'm absolutely fine to have a friendship or a relationship with somebody who is conservative in their politics. I think there's a dialogue to be had between people who are more, uh, you know, concerned with individual liberty and free market principles versus somebody who's more uh, collectivist in their bearing or whatever. Like, let's have that dialogue. Let's have right. those, like let's have a, an honest debate on the issues with like. A mutual set of facts to work from right you can't just pick your own truths you know like there's got to be some honest from from both sides there's got to be some honest dealing and we've got to have like a rigorous debate like i think that's healthy for a society right but i feel like we've gotten so far away 
from that. <laughs> well, I just feel so angry because I grew up with this. And so even though my brother didn't vote for Reagan, I feel like I, I know his politics. Or vote and for I know, Trump, you mean. I mean, sorry, vote for Trump. I know his politics and I know that that led to this, you yeah. know. And so I don't think he wants to pretend like it has nothing to do with him. And it does. And and he was the one, you know, after the election, you're overreacting, give it time, everything everything will be okay. And I, I knew, I said, no, it's not going to be okay. It's going to be bad. I remember having a conversation with some uh, Republican buddies of mine, like guys I went to college with or knew, you know, in college years who I've been friends with forever. And we've debated politics forever. Right. And I just remember texting. I'll be like, I remember being like, he's going to destroy the country or he's going to yeah. try to destroy the country. And they were like, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. And I'm Give like, him a chance. I kind of want to be like, well, what do you think now? Yeah. What do you think now? I'm like, I'm going to wait for it to play out. But to me, it seems so easy to see that, like, in the long run, you know, it, w taking the long view, 50 years from now, right. when history looks back, it's going to be 100% crystal clear right. that Trump was a criminal, right. mobster, in hoc to the Russians. Is that the right use of in hoc? I believe so. He owes them lots of money. Right. They own him. The United States of America essentially uh, is not sovereign right. because we have a, a chief executive who is the puppet of a foreign adversary. Yeah, it seems very obvious. It seems very me. obvious. It's and right I, in our face. And, yeah. And so for me, I think it is that dire. And so I cannot be quiet or polite anymore. My family is kind of shocked by what's happened to me, but they don't hear it from anyone else. Because they watch Fox. Yeah, I suppose so. And and so, um, so, they're, so it's tough for all of us. And so I just had to explain to my dad, you know, if, if you want to talk, if you want to, this is what you're going to get, you know, I'm not, I can't do that anymore. I'm not going to do the sweet, um, let's all stand and pray. And no, you yeah. don't get to do that to me anymore. Right. So I, I'm really, it's really, um, caused a lot of havoc and drama and, um, and come closer to um, destroying some relationships in my family. Well, it's tough. I mean, I, I kind of, I'm of two minds. Like I sort of agree with you that you need to hold the line. Like at some point, like you do have to draw a line you when do. there are Nazis right. marching right. and white supremacist marches and the, the president saying they're fine people. It's like, no, you know, like it's enough. absolutely yeah. not. This is fucked up. Right. And when the president is going to Helsinki and, um, you know, making nice with Vladimir Putin and hiding in a room with him for two hours with no other people around. Like, this is so clearly right. messed up. And you have to, I think, put your foot down and say your piece. But I also think that it's not going to help any of us if we all just go to our separate corners right. and don't dialogue. Uh, at some point, we have to bring some of these people over who might be in Trump's camp, but who are open to the idea of uh, maybe uh, hearing other perspectives right. and rethinking things a little bit. Well, at the very least, they have to listen to me now, and it's not pretty, and um, and they aren't calling me <laughs> to hear more. So, but Well, I'd... but I mean, the fact that you've expressed yourself clearly right. and you've made your case, and I'm assuming articulately, um, I don't know if you did it in writing or if you just talked we to We finally talked by phone. It would have been a long time, and... Um, and really, I just didn't want to talk to him at all or anybody at all. And then um, I saw that the Mr. Rogers 
documentary that I know you had talked about with other guests, and I thought, well, I owe it at least to explain what is going on. And so I thought about it a while, and um, and finally, because uh, I had, you know, written a scathing letter and included a lot of things and, and did not send it and uh, knew better. Didn't, and then that's, that's what Abe Lincoln used to do. Oh man. He used to write like Abe Lincoln was like, you, you know, pretty mild mannered yeah. and controlled, but he apparently would write like really fucking angry letters. I came really close to sending <laughs> it and it had links to things. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it was very well thought out. I've sent some angry letters in my day. It's not a good idea. And it, I regret every one. Right. And then I almost sent it, and then I called my dad the next day, and um, I thought, okay, well, I'll tell him face to face on the phone, or will. And he was on vacation, and he was so happy when he answered the phone. So if I had sent the letter, I would have blown his whole vacation. Yeah. So I was really glad I didn't send it. Well, I think like if you can keep talking, hold firm, like not like every day, right? But then the other thing I would say is that the fact that you did this. I got to believe your father, your brother, your mother, as they navigate and they take things in, will at least in some corner of their mind, pause a little bit. and be I like, think they are. My brother and my mom, I think, but they might be performing for me. I can't tell. So who knows? Well, yeah. You know, and I think too, like when the truth is finally out, it's sort of like Watergate. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there are probably people out there who think Nixon was, I mean, what Roger Stone is oh, with his Nixon tattoo believes, yeah. you know, Nixon was, was uh, innocent of everything and, you know, a God, but you really don't hear too many people on either side of the aisle who are debating at this point in our nation's history, whether or not Nixon was a crook and deserved to be impeached. Right. And I think to an even greater degree, I, I, I got to believe either the country goes down completely right. and we lose the Republic or we're going to get to a place where uh, Donald Trump's name is um, on par or, or I think even um, has an even greater negative connotation than like Benedict Arnold. Right. I think that's where we're going to get and it's going to be obvious. Everyone's going to go, oh yeah. And I'm going to be interested to watch and I'm already sort of bracing myself like I feel anger around it to watch the transformation of GOP politicians who, once it becomes favorable right. to say, you know, like, oh, you know, he, he was... Oh, I can't... I mean... Because they know. When is that going to happen? I It'll mean, happen when crazy. it becomes politically tenable for it for them to be engaged in that way. Meaning when their power is more threatened... Is not contingent on his... Yeah. Or when it becomes more, uh, it's, it, when it's in their best interest right. to be anti, then it'll change. But it has nothing to do with the country's interest. And that's what pisses me off yeah, so it's, much. it's awful. This is just an awful time. It's really hard, I think. Well, I hope we, I hope it's some sort of, um, like, process that we're going through, like a, a very serious illness. Right. That, like, if we can build up enough antibodies or whatever and flush it out of the system or whatever that will be stronger. You know, you'll build up some immunity to it. I hope so. But it's going to take, I think, a level of commitment ongoing, not just once Trump is gone, but like right. a, a level of civic engagement from people like you and I right. who are going to have to continue to pay attention yeah, and continue to donate and volunteer right. and talk about this stuff even though it is uncomfortable, (laughs) even though it can get onerous. And like, I think about, uh, the nature of the environment that we live in, both from a media standpoint, but also from like a social media and digital standpoint. And I've had this sense for a long time, but it's, I, it's, I think it's strengthening day by day that like we are in a war 
it's an information war. Yes. And I think I that, you know, even though it's only like, a, a, you know, it's like small drops in the ocean. Right. I really do believe that communicating, um, about politics and trying to get, um, sanity in like into the, the bloodstream. A, yeah. You know be what I'm part saying? of the counter. Yeah. You, you yeah. have to counter it cause you're yeah. fighting uh, Russian bots. Yeah, I agree. That are like pumping disinformation in your into, own small way, you in your own small way. Right. And so I think that it's not, it, it's about me doing it and it's about me doing other things too, like right. driving people to the polls and phone banking and stuff like that and writing essays or whatever it is. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's about volume, right? It's about if, if lots of us who care and who have yeah. like a foot in reality, if we are all posting this stuff, yeah, like you are going to be able to beat it back. But if you're not, if you're saying like, I don't want to engage, then what you're basically doing is seeding the field to the opposition. Yeah. Like, so I, I guess I'm encouraging people listening, like consider tweeting and Facebooking, like, even if it's just like retweeting. Like yeah, you that's what I do. Yeah, that's so, what I do. Yeah. It's like you don't have to like sit there and like. I don't know how to tweet, but I know how to retweet. Yeah, it's so. a, well, you just click a button. But if it's an article that you feel is meaningful or that gets some truth back into the um, into the body politic or whatever, then I think that that's worth doing because otherwise, it's like you know, there's a lot of madness in the system, and it's amazing to me how people can, uh, you know, on a certain media diet, be living in it totally different world definitely it's so fucked up it is really fucked up my yeah when i talked to my brother he didn't it was right around the time the the tapes came of the the, the immigrant girl you know the crying for her right. parent and he hadn't even heard it i said have did you listen to this listen to yeah. what's going on he, he didn't know what i was talking about so he he just doesn't get that information well some of, some of it is is like i'm a fox news watcher who listens to right-wing radio right. and that's my equals and i read maybe the wall street journal or breitbart or whatever that's it is what my brother i think my brother is like that yeah so you can do that and you can you can basically curate your own reality right. and i would say that like it's fine it's it should be fine for there to be conservative publications that advocate for those kinds of policies and that make those kinds of arguments um, but you have to, I think you have to balance it out. And then the other thing I, is that, you know, these conservative outlets are not dealing from that foundation of mutual facts. Right. They're creating, or they'll say anything. It's propaganda. It is. It's and propaganda. that's what makes it dangerous. And so yeah, it's frightening. Anyhow, I could go on and on. It's a weird time to be alive. And, uh, I hope that, I hope that we're heading for a saner future somehow because we're going to have gone through this and we're going to get get to the end of it hopefully and say never again i hope so are you, are you that optimistic um <laughs> I, I i waver i go back and forth but i think in terms of my personal life and my family it's really made me separate myself even more you know my whole family is very conservative and republican and my grandfather was a huge nixon guy and so i always felt like the outsider and in well, fact, he told me, I, I, when I asked him, I said, isn't there anyone in the family? Anyone. He was in the hospital. I went to visit him. Anyone that feels the way I do or had these other feelings. He said, no, you're the only one. And so, um, I mean, that's hard to hear. I, I, I was listening to your podcast with Otessa and yeah. she was so confident about who she was and her work. And I really envy that. And I thought about it a lot afterwards and I realized there's still 
because I grew up in this family where my voice was not recognized or heard or even encouraged at all. And they just have no idea what I'm trying to do because they don't read. They don't, art is not on their radar at all that, um, there's still like a little bit of shame to my being a writer and to having my work out in the world. And, um, I really aspire to have that confidence and that level of, um, I know who I am. I know my work is good. It doesn't matter what anyone around me says. Uh, and, and, um, I'm just going to put it out there, but I, I, when I publish a book or, or anything, it's a very mixed feeling. Even when I get good reviews or compliments, I feel so strange. I feel like I'm not supposed to be even talking or writing or exp showing my reality at all. So I thought about it a lot since that, since your review with, or your interview with her. And, and, um, I think that too is why I go, my name, or my name is Victoria, but I go by Tori. So everybody knows me by Tori. And as my kids were, as I was raising my kids, I could always pretend like that Victoria is way more, she's way dark and like, <laughs> she's not a good mom. She's or, your alter ego. She just, yeah. So I could separate myself a little. And even when I'd go pick them up from school and the other moms would say, I hear you're a writer. Uh, what's your work like? I could just say, oh, no, not on that Victoria. Yeah, right. I'm Tori. I'll go bring the cookies yeah, right. and put the smile on and like go to swim class. And yeah. Um, and so it's kind of a, a different, I mean, a, a lot of it is connected to being a mom too. And I know, or so, you know, that that changes sometimes. Um, but yeah, it's a weird thing to, I, I feel to put your I work out there in the world and feel like you're not even, that you're doing something so sort of naughty. That's how I feel. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's also, I, I, I can relate to, I think one of the reasons why I'm in the communications uh realm professionally like writing and podcasting and everything is that i had that sense when i was a kid that like i was the one in my family who's like wait i'm i feel like we're all in this together and like we need to help everybody and like isn't jesus saying <laughs> like isn't jesus saying that like the poor people we got to start with them and like right. i took it all I, I really took it seriously but i wasn't seeing that reflected in the the culture around me. And I, you know, I, again, I just, I was kind of swimming against the current in my family politically, maybe not to the extent that you were like, it feels like maybe the, the intensity level was maybe a bit higher in terms of the conservative. It was pretty intense. And I think too, um, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to grow up in a family where art is, you know what it is to be an artist or it's encouraged. And so in a lot of ways, I thank my family because it really, it's what I write about. It's yeah. that shame is part of my work. Sure. You're working, and, you're working against something. Yeah. Kinda. So yeah. it's not, um, but yeah, that, that feeling of being a misfit. And I remember asking my mom, well, what about helping the poor? And she said something like, you can't help everybody. <laughs> or, you know, they got to help themselves. And, you know, and I get and it. I was like, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but it's just about, it's just such a different worldview. It's really a fundamental. Why, why do you think you came out differently? Like in this um, family, like you have every reason from a nurture standpoint to be like a hardcore Christian conservative. And yet I should be at the country club right now, Brad, yeah, right. like married to some really rich dude. <laughs> um, instead I married a, another artist and yeah. have these ki kids that are kind of different too. But I think it's be, I think honestly, I think there were other 
people who thought like me, but their voices were just smothered. So there were some women back there. But what is it? Is it genetics? Is it experiential? I have no idea. I mean, I remember I've had, I had some really tough conversations with my grandpa in particular because he was a racist and I, and he tapped it down for me because I was such a sensitive kid. So he would, he knew I'd burst out crying or this or that. But when I grew up, I grew up in that environment where racist jokes were just told at the dinner table. And when I got old enough to know better, I finally kind of stood up to him, which was a big deal because he was the big old patriarch, you know. And I remember asking him, you know, you can't really believe that. What, why would you, what is it that that just can't be the, the way you really believe? And he said, it is. He just said, that's who that is. End of story. Just oh, real matter of fact. So I don't chilling. know. It's chilling. It's really, um, so to have that legacy of a, of a family and to be writing about that is um, painful. And so it is, it's a mixed feeling whenever I, when I, when I work. And um, yeah, you have an ability to, to deal in your fiction with um, dark subject matter, um, these kinds of characters. I mean, we, I think we talked the first time you were on the show about Orange County, Yeah, you know, which is, or at least it was, it's changing demographically. I Not think. when Newport beach where that's, it's still like it's the Republican yeah. in man it's GOP bad there. and big money. Yeah. Big old Trump signs everywhere. And then it's weird because it's like the, my mom's hairdresser is the Trump fanatic, you know, or the plant guy who waters her plants. What is that? He's a Trump fanatic too? Yes. These are the people that are not going to ever benefit that have this idea that... Well, that's a lot of the base. Yeah, it's crazy to me. Like, it's not only are they not going to benefit, but like a lot of the policies and the things that he's doing are actively working against them. And they're just Trump. They're just Trump gaga. There's just no reasoning with them. Well, but it's also, I think like these are, I think they're in a lot of ways are people who are angry and feeling left out or left behind or worried, you know, it's a lot of, so I feel socioeconomic to me. Maybe. Yeah. The people that work where it's most rich and poor and they're just always working for the rich or, or just people who feel kicked somehow, whether it's money right. or they feel like their religion gets mocked or all of the above, or, you know, they just feel like, uh, I don't know. I think there's anger that's animating them and it's, it's, uh, it's coming from money. It's coming from cultural stuff. And Trump is willing to go out and kick back and by allying themselves with him, they get to have some experience of revenge, even if it's not in their best interest economically. It's like, it's like they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot for like the pleasure of it. Yeah. It feels, it is. It's a little bit like they're getting their revenge. Fuck you. Right. Fuck me too. And let's all just be fucked. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It feels, I think. Which I can understand. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, totally. I understand that impulse, but come on. We got to be adults. Dude, let's knock it off. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, I I wonder what, I wonder what's going to happen if the evidence comes out the way that I think it ultimately will, and it eventually becomes undeniable. I also think that like, there's an argument that I've read on the internet and I've talked about with people where like, eventually it's going to become financially untenable for Fox news to keep beating the propaganda drum 
because as more and more people like as more and more evidence piles up it's just be, like you can't keep up the guys that you're a news network right past a certain point advertisers are going to be you know so at some point i think they're going to flip i hope so and yeah, like yeah. but it won't be for any kind of like noble reason it'll right. simply be because of money finance it's all yeah it's always the financial thing but once that happens if fox news if like the you know, Hannity's going to somehow have to be squeezed out, but eventually like, you know, the Mike Wallace is uh, Shepard Smith right. is Shepard Smith is like sort of like the one sane voice on that network. Right. And, but eventually there's going to be, I think like, you know, the morning show or whatever, they're going to have to cop to the fact that there are some facts that are unpleasant to deal with, but right. that they're real. And then like, once you see that happening, then what's going to happen to this population of people who watch only that? And like, how will they cope with that reality? You yeah, know, I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to see, you know, I guess people who lived through Nixon could, could speak to it. You know, if you went through the Watergate years, there were people who were on board right up until the end. And I guess my grandpa was heartbroken about Nixon and really, you know, still, did he feel like he got, did he feel like my mom told me recently, like when I asked her about it, she said, yeah, he, he was just devastated by that. Heartbroken because he realized Nixon was a crook or heartbroken because he felt like Nixon got fucked over. I think the latter, yeah. <laughs> God, man. People hang on tight. Yeah. And I think people are hanging on tight right now. So I don't know. I don't know. It's going to get ugly. Wow. It's going to get uglier. And I don't know. Who do you want to be the next president? Like, who is your oh, candidate? Oh, I don't know. I would Elizabeth Warren would be dream candidate, I think, for me. I kind of feel her, too, because I feel like she's a fighter. Yeah. I think you need somebody who's, like, unapologetic, somebody who is willing to throw down a little bit because you know how about you i think okay i think i mean i'm thinking and i also think like a a woman i feel like a female candidate would be justice for what happened to hillary and for what happened to women in particular in this country who supported her candidacy like she she got fucked over women who supported her got fucked over definitely right um anybody who supported her got fucked over but i especially feel for like women who wanted to see a woman president I feel like she won the election. She won the popular vote right. by a mile. But then I also really do feel like, what was it? Like 30,000 votes that really determined it? Right. Distributed across because, three states? Yeah. It's hard for me to consider all that was done from a disinformation, hacking, um, cheating standpoint. I know. I don't know how anyone can how could you possibly, rationalize How that could you or... possibly look at it all and be like, oh, yeah, it's a legitimate victory? It's, yeah. It's 100% not legitimate. No. And that's not. not like, that's not left or right, Democrat or Republican. That's just like, what's fair here? Let, this is fucked up, you know? And I, once we get to, if we get to a point where we have to come to grips with that, I'm going to be very interested, you know, very interested to see how like the population reacts and how the government responds. Yeah. Like, do you wipe the slate clean? I wonder. Do you, does Neil Gorsuch resign? I'm ready, man. Yeah. Let's bring it. Because like if I'm... Sorry, I, I yelled. No, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> Please, I, hurry, I, hurry. I could see... I'm like, so over this. In a sane world, you would have like, you know, the uh, eight Supreme Court justices or seven Supreme Court, Court justices if Kavanaugh, God forbid, gets uh, put through. They're going to force him in if, if well I, you would hope that they would say you know what this they're not going to say that they're going to try to squeeze him. that that guy in God. yeah they're gonna but like doesn't john roberts have a, like a conscience wouldn't he go oh this isn't a partisan issue this is really about like the sanctity of our democracy i don't know i don't think so I, I feel like it's all power and and if things were getting re- what you can while you can before it goes down if things were reversed 
and it was a Democrat who were cheating. No, the double standard is insane. I feel like I would be like... The, the hypocrisy is off the charts. That's would, what drives me crazy, the yeah. hypocrisy with my family. And I just can't do it anymore. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I don't... I, I, get, I, I mean, everyone's a hypocrite a little bit, but man, that level of hypocrisy. When I asked my dad by... When we had that a conversation, I said, well you know, you claim to be this family values Christian and yet you support Trump. And I don't, you have to explain that to me because this guy is, as a woman, especially, and as a woman who has had sexual abuse in her past, you know, this, I feel like it's a direct, to me, it's painful that you're supporting this man. And he said, well, you have to understand that uh, Jesus said that nobody knows what's in a man's heart. (laughs) <laughs> they, 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 Jesus they sure seemed to know what was in Obama's heart. And not Obama. only, yeah, I was like, God, I had to listen to all your shit about Clinton. When Clinton, Clinton with the blowjobs, oh, they went nuts. Nuts. My, so offended so by this offended. man. But just Obama. he is, yeah. But now, hands off. Yeah. Jesus would don't, say, don't, don't look in a judge man's not, heart. Judge not, lest he be judged. Let's, <laughs> so let's, I said, I don't know. That's not working for me, Dad. No. No. That logic is, that. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, I... I don't understand the psychology. He was almost like just fishing it out there. Like, maybe she'll buy this. Yeah. I think it really is, you know, let's jam, let's get woman's abortion off, you know, everything. Get all my stuff in with this guy because he's doing my bidding. Yeah. So it's okay. It's a deal with the devil. It's a deal with the devil. But I think they really, I think he legitimately believes that Trump is Jesus supported. (sighs) Yeah. That he's. That Jesus has chosen Trump to do the dirty work. I think that's how they rationalize it. I felt that in that conversation. Wow. Yeah. It's just like, like trying to unpack the psychology. Can you imagine thinking that? Like, yeah. I'm trying to understand what that feels like. To, <laughs> I, I guess you could. I could see you think like this guy is everything, but he plays dirty, which is what you need. Well, I mean, I can. So I, you, you do have to he's make doing you, everything that Jesus wants, but he just has to be really dirty about it. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm totally down with like you have to make concessions in politics. Like, there's no perfect politician. <laughs> Like Obama was flying drones. Obama was doing mass deportations. Like you can actually poke a lot of holes in Obama morally. Like if you wanted to go piece by piece, I think in the broad, he was an excellent president and like a very decent man. And like we couldn't, we we would be hard pressed to do better in my mind. But like, yeah, there's some, you, you have to make some sort of concession as you're like supporting a politician because, you know, it's not going to be all perfect, but man, these are some concessions to be making. For Trump, I, I, I don't think like, yeah, I, I don't think I can understand the degree. Right. And then I also don't think I can, I have a hard time accessing this, this, uh, you know, this higher power who's like ordaining this and like, right. You know. And why? Yeah. If they hadn't, or to be so vocally against like Clinton and Obama and knowing that they're bad and then all of a sudden to give someone a pass, it just, it's hypocrisy. Well, and it's like the the irony too is that Obama was for a president in our lifetime so squeaky clean, right? Scandal free, dang, happily married, beautiful children, right. like by all accounts, thoughtful, actually thoughtful read books, books like great, cared communi- about literacy, yeah. cared about people, 
Col- um, like sensitive to other cultures, like con- you know, like right. I don't know, like, like everything that what a wuss. yeah, everything, <laughs> but everything that I would understand the teachings of Jesus right. to mean. I'm not saying that Obama was perfect, but I'm just saying that like he seemed to be right. more the embodiment of those teachings than any president in my life. But he lifetime. was a Muslim. But he and he was brown. Yeah, and like that's the thing is that. Beneath it all, beneath all the histrionics about morality and policy, is it like really? It's just like he's he's brown. Yeah, it's and he's got it's this name and and, and uh, you know Islamophobia, and that's what's really animating. And I think people use these other issues. Sometimes you know, there's a lot of blatant racism and blatant yeah. Islamophobia, but there's also like um, you know people who use these other issues as a kind of shield. Right. And it's like, well, this is what's pissing me off. And, they, you know, it sort of uh, protects them from accusations of being racist or Islamophobic. Right. And then in private, probably they're like, you know. I think I'm in a writer's group with three people of color. So I'm so hyper aware of, you know, they'll turn and work and I won't. They'll have to explain stuff to me because I'm the token white. Yeah. And um, And then I'll go spend time with my family. And it's just head exploding, you know, I've so. got a family wedding in November and I've already thought about it because I know it's going to come up, especially around the election. Yeah. Oh, in it's November, like, it's okay. going to be right after I believe the election, uh, the midterms. Well, hopefully you'll be in a victory route. Hopefully. But I'm just like, man, cause it always comes up. Like my family is actually very political in terms of like, we, we talk about it. Right. Uh, I'm very close with my parents and like, you know, my parents, um, especially since they moved to California, have moderated. My dad is pretty, 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 uh, yeah, it sounds like they're reasoned. They're or, reasoned yeah. and like totally a hundred percent decent. I think just like they come from the South and, right. you know, it's like a different place and time and bearing. And, um, I'd like to believe that there are people who might have a conservative, uh, lean to their politics who are people of conscience and like there's room for that in america right like isn't there i just think the middle needs to move i always say move the middle like right now what is constituted as the middle is too far to the right i think we need to move it over back to the left and get people to think and like here's my argument right <laughs> i've made this case so many times because i try to get it to a place in my own thinking and in my own conversations where it's simple uh, for me to understand and for me to explain. But basically, uh, it comes down to this argument between collective and individual. Like, do you believe that each person is an individual self and a pod and it's every man for himself and you shouldn't have any real obligation to your fellow man in terms of uh, sharing the wealth right. or helping them out if they're downtrodden or if they didn't get the breaks that you had, or if they've been irresponsible or if they have some sort of illness or, you know what I'm saying? Like some people believe or lean more towards, Hey, it's every man for himself. I'm fighting for me and mine and you fight for you and yours and you have personal responsibility and don't come asking me if I outworked you or I, you know, I had more advantages than you, which is usually the case. Um, you know, there are people who have more of that individualistic lean and then there are people who are more like, is everyone okay? Did you get enough to eat? Like, we're all, we should all share. <laughs> like I want, you know, I'm worried yeah. about everybody and I'm over it. May, maybe over empathizing and internalizing other people's pain or you know, whatever right. it is. But it's like those two, ten, there's the tension between those two. And that to me is as it should be, because I believe individual liberty is important. Sure. 
I believe people should have the right to live their lives as they see fit and pursue what they want to pursue. I believe that there should be um, free markets with constraints. I believe people should be able to start a business right. and try to realize their dreams. And like, But I, I don't believe they should be able to dump poison into the river that then pollutes yeah. all of our drinking water. Right. So it's like this necessary tension between these two things. What I would say is that the reason I want the middle to be moved closer to the left and closer to the we're all on this together side, and the reason why I think that's the saner approach to uh, policy decisions, is that the we're all in this together concept is the deeper truth. Definitely. Like, yes, we are all individuals. Right. Yes, we are all selves, selves, and we all are these individual bodies or whatever moving through the world and trying to, you know, survive. But the deeper truth is that we're all connected. I completely agree. And if you're miserable and yeah. sad and sick and poor, right. it's gonna it's not gonna be good for me in the long run. We depend on one another. And what kind of a life is it to not have that? I mean, how lonely and pathetic of a life. Yeah. To, that's that's such a deep fundamental truth that you're missing. The power of being alive and being sentient and caring and yeah, I but mean, it can be taken too far. Like I, right. I believe, like you can't have. The, I also believe, like you, you know, the left can't exist without the right. right. If you don't have a right, you can't have a left. If you don't have a left, you can't have a right. So as much as we like the so idea, just to get them nudged over, yeah, so, yeah. Well, I think people, like people, often uh, of whatever political persuasion, wish that the the quote unquote other side would just go away. Right. But the truth is that if the other side were to be disappeared you too would disappear. Like there, there has to be a tension between the two polarities. Think about that. But right. where is the middle? <laughs> yeah. That's the issue. And, uh, I feel like if we could get our politics reorient, reoriented more towards like, uh, FDR ish, right. Liberalism, um, which by the way, the greatest boom in the history of the world economically was between 1947 and 1980. Hmm. Hmm. After, yeah. The New Deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, which was unraveled with Reagan. Yeah. But it's like we came out of the Depression, we came out of World War II, right. and, you know, the, the, the economic, um, you know, the economic uh, wave that our parents' generation right. rode. Like my grandpa. Yeah. yeah. The people made a shit ton of money. Yeah. And could, you know, there could be single uh, breadwinner households and... You know, you'd have you go to work for a company and right. work there your entire life, and you know, retire, retire, and, and you could be yeah. you could be a factory worker and own a home and send your kids to, kids to college. And you know, I'm not saying it was perfect, but I am saying that you know it was real. Right. And I think that you know, to be playing devil's advocate and to try to be fair, like if you do get too collectivist in your uh, approach, if the if the middle moves all the way over, if things right. get out of balance towards the left, right. fascism can rise from the left just as easily as it can rise from right. the right. Right, we know that. And yeah. I don't think that, like, this is just my personal thinking on the matter, because I, I think I'm more liberal, but, like, I don't identify with a team. I'm registered independent. I don't like joining teams. Right. I just like policy. And, like, what do I think actually is best and true? Uh, do I vote mostly Democrat? Sure, but that's just because they, ref they tend to support the policies that I like. And... When I think about like the more collectivist attitude and the we're all in this together attitude, I don't believe in equality of outcome. Like if you bust, yeah. if you bust your ass as a writer and you're right. getting the work done every day, uh, and somebody else is working like kind of when they feel like it once or twice a week, maybe. Yeah. And you both submit your manuscripts 
to, uh, you know, right. counterpoint or Simon and Schuster, whatever it is. And they take yours and not the other person's like, that's, it's justice. That's justice. Yeah. You know? So it's like, I, I don't think that everybody should make the same amount of money. <laughs> right. Is basically what I'm saying. But I right. do there's think there's difference. Yeah. There's a variation and achievement and, and that should be honored, but yeah. it's way out of balance. Right. No, it's crazy right now. You know? And like, that's all that I'm arguing. It's like, yeah. listen, I'm not saying that you can't be rich, right. but like, maybe we don't need people in this country to have like a hundred billion dollars. Right. Like if Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion dollars, we should tax the fuck out of Jeff, like Warren Buffett, who Warren Buffett has advocated for this himself. Yeah. He's like, please tax, tax me. me. You don't need that money. And you have people who are literally sleeping in the streets no, all it's over. Insane. It's insane. It's and, insane right now. It's the weirdest. Yeah. So I have thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I, I have just, emotions. <laughs> I do. But I'm like, I'm like, I, I want to be reasonable. I want to. I don't even want to be reasonable anymore. So yeah. You're I'm, like, I'm done. I'm done. I think because of my family and everything and fighting against that. And it was it, it, that sort of shark world mentality of sink or swim. And I, I feel that cutthroatness in my own family. And while I'm glad, cause it did make me who I am and I'm tough and this, you know, and I, and I know how to work hard. I'm just over it. I'm over trying to figure out why they think the way they do or well, trying to reason with them or, um, you know, like, last conversation I had with my brother, he was taught poor Scott. I hope he never listens to this podcast <laughs> and I love him. He, I, I mean, we've worked close, but the last conversation, I think we talked about, he, he was going off about the football players kneeling, um, and how unpatriotic and, and it's like the I most was, my son was there. My son's looking at me like easy mom. Don't. <laughs> Don't go. And I, and I just spoke up and I, I just thought I'd really like to see you make this argument in a room full of football, big <laughs> football players. And, you know, or just this kind of idea that, um, he knows better than the person themselves yeah. just drives me crazy. I cannot. Well, plus that issue in particular offends me because it's so offensive. It's such a dumb that what offends me is the stupidity of it. It's so stupid. People who are construing this as anti-patriotic when the truth is that they're not protesting the flag, they're protesting police brutality and, and racial injustice, and they're exercising their First Amendment right, which is precisely what all of these soldiers who went and fought and died to protect the Republic died to preserve. It's like that very act is exactly what these... I guess what I'm saying is I'm done pretending that their point of view is or they're knowing what's right for everybody else and in terms of religion and money and that con I'm just done. I don't I don't need to hear anything you have to say anymore. I've done it and long enough and I pretended long enough and I'm really clear that you're in the wrong at this point. And in the, this point in history um, as it would be immoral for me not to stand up and say, no, yeah, done strong, put yeah. your foot down. And that's, you know what? Cause I, you know, in the, as a person who is interested in things like, um, peace and dialogue and mutual respect and all these, you know, things that uh, I'm interested in, right? um, there is a place in time where you, you know, it's okay to say no. I think and, that's what I'm doing. And I to guess. say no, you know, like the, I'm drawing a line, like, no, it's All not right. Done. Yeah. And, and I also say to them, I love you. 
and I'll always love you, but I'm done. So, yeah. And they love me, and I know that, but it's painful because yeah. I can't do it anymore. I hear you. Yeah. I, I hear you. And I think there's a lot of families and people in America who might not even be as diplomatic about it as you are, you know, where things are. I know people who, you know, I have a friend who's gay whose parents voted for Trump and like that completely destroyed their relationship. Right. And I don't, I don't, I understand. Yeah. Like, how can you possibly be a gay person and your parents are voting for this guy who's coming after you? Like, that's got to fuck with your head. Yeah, no, it's not. You know, yeah. and I don't see how as a parent you could possibly do that to your child. Right. Like, just don't vote or like write in like, you know, Bozo the Clown or something. Like, just take a, take a knee like to use a, yeah. you know, like just sit this one out or something. Like, it was so obvious that it was a dark turn. But uh, Yeah, people... and my brother, if he says, you know, I have a a family party or whatever i would like you to come but can you promise me you won't talk or bring anything up he does that now and um i say no i can't promise you that if someone says something i'm gonna say something it's just my way of speaking up and i did it a little bit in the past but i didn't and i do it through my work hmm. but it, for me it's the only it's the only option i can't go to a family function and not if someone says something, I'm not going to purposely poke at someone and try to make a fight. So he's pretty much asking me not to be me. Yeah. Like, you can come to this party, but can you please not be you? Yeah, right. No, I can't do that. Can you silence yourself, please? Yeah, just uh, and Let, let and, us have the floor. Yeah, like, I get it. Eat too. your like, barbecue. and. I'm not going to start the conversation. Right. But if I'm standing there and somebody says, maybe that's how I'll handle this family wedding. Like, if I'm standing there... And it comes up and some people say, well, like, well, yeah, I don't like the guy, but he's doing some good things. I think I'm going to have to be like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, <laughs> you know, because like, exactly. otherwise, like. You're compliant. You're, you're compliant. You're, yeah. You're colluding. <laughs> you're colluding, you asshole. It's so obvious. So Elizabeth Warren, 2020. Yes. Hopefully she, she run. I think a lot of people are going to run. I think you're going to see a democratic field that in its numbers and in its variance is not dissimilar to what we saw in, in 16 with the Republicans. I think a lot of people, like, I think a lot of people are going to run because they're going to feel like it's a, assuming that the, um, the, you know, the voting rights and the, uh, the election system isn't completely corrupted, Right. assuming it's a fair fight it's going to be a great year to run as a Democrat because there's going to be a lot of momentum. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of energy. A lot of energy. Things. So I think that politicians who want the presidency know that and are going to be like, well, if I can get it, then I'm, I have a good chance of winning the White House. Might as well try. This is my chance. So, and I think one of the things that Trump did, which will impact both parties, is he completely blew up this notion of uh, credentials and waiting your turn and like having a certain set of experiences to run. So like, it's like the Kanye West. Now I can be president. Yeah. Which that bothers me, <laughs> not just Kanye, but like just anybody like Dwayne, the rock Johnson, please, like, just, like please. just don't God. like, don't, you know, like that <laughs> I know like, I'm not saying that if you have acted or made music in your life, you can't turn to politics, but like, show me you're serious about right. it. Let me, let me see you like boning up on public policy and let me see you like surrounding yourself with advisors. Like use your millions to educate yourself before you're going to present yourself as a leader of the people. Right. Um, it's not that it can't be done. It's just like, I'm not seeing that happen. And I sort of wonder, like I was thinking about Oprah because I feel like Oprah could galvanize a lot of people and could get like, you know, she could get a ton of media and could um, make a persuasive case standing in front of people and could be an effective candidate. 
and she's obviously filthy rich. Like money is no object. If she really wanted to run, she could just reach out. She could open her Rolodex and talk to Obama or whomever and be like, who do I need to surround myself with? I want to get educated over these next three years. I'm just hoping it's not another celebrity. Let's just hope. I just don't want another celebrity. Yeah. But I just... Even Oprah. I don't... I'm just making her... I'm using her as an example of like, if you did want to leverage your celebrity platform to like do good works. Right. Like, I think that in a matter of two or three years, if you took it seriously and like treated it like a graduate level education, you could get yourself up to speed and and meet with enough people. Not that you would have mastery over everything, but you would be functional. But absent that work, if you just go out and say like, based on my success as an entertainer and talk show host and all the people I've met with over the years, I'm now ready to be, I don't buy that. I think people need to, or at least as a voter, I would right. need to know, like, you've done the work. Right. Right? Absolutely. And hopefully we, you know, I, you know, it's got to be like this balance between competence and like new energy. I think voters are not going to want to go backwards or like, they kind of want somebody who's sort of an outsider-y. Who's it going to be? Elizabeth. Somebody like so. her. Yeah. Cause she's got like the experience, but she's also got like this kind of, what about Elizabeth and, and then Bernie Sanders as a vice president? I think Bernie's going to be, I think his candidacy is going to be tainted Warren, by Tad Devine's involvement in Ukraine and by, cause Tad Devine, his campaign manager oh, is so up there's to connections going on. And I think Bernie was either a useful idiot oh. when it came to the so Russian war to come out. Okay. So Tad Devine and I supported Bernie in the yeah. primaries because I loved his I loved him on policy, right. <laughs> and I loved how like uh, how uh, like clear he was yeah. about like it's a disgrace. That yeah, pe- my sons. I mean, just the energy and the young people and and just the unapologetic, yeah. the unapologetic, like not negotiating with yourself, yeah. but like strong. Like I'm, you know, I responded call, to that. Call it what it is. Yeah, I'm for the poor. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. Like. um, but I also happily voted for Hillary. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not like the guy who's like, you know, Hillary and Trump are the same. That sort of no. insanity misses me. But uh, well, who I think, do you think for the vice president? Ideally, would if we're making a making a deal here for president Elizabeth well, Warren, who I would first say that like I think Bernie would run. I think though that his candidacy is going to be tainted because I think as people learn about Tad Devine in Ukraine and what like Tad run like coming on board to run Bernie's campaign. It's a little, it's a little fishy. It smells, yeah. it smells weird. And I don't know exactly what the situation is, yeah. but like, I want to find out yeah. more. And it's also making me feel like, did I get suckered? You know? Like, right. Um, and also like, you know, some of the, I know it was like a, a hard fought contest and Bernie came reasonably close and I think it's hard to fight, you know, to, right. to do what he did and to lose. Right. Um, but his support of Hillary going into the general maybe could have been better. I also think Hillary was a flawed candidate. Um, I never got that. I just thought she was great. I always did. Yeah. So I just, I know people, people explain it, explain it. And I think it's too, because I grew up hearing that she was the devil. I don't think she's the devil. I think I I just can't, I don't, I I never bought it then. I don't buy it now. She's hyper, like super competent. I thought she was charismatic. I thought, I mean, all that thing that people say, I thought, I I mean, I listened to her speeches and I was taken in and she would have so. been she would have been light years <laughs> yeah like it goes without saying but i i would say like the clintons aren't uh, there there are yeah, legitimate criticisms right. to be made right. of them that i don't think 
for example, the Obamas, right. um, I don't think similar criticisms can be made of them. Right. Like the way that they have conducted themselves. And uh, Ooh, what about Michelle Obama for VP? She won't do it. She won't do but it. But Kamala, possibly. Oh, okay. Because like, yeah. to, to answer... So a double woman ticket. Yeah. To answer your question okay. about if Liz Warren were to be the nominee, yeah. um, one of the things that happened when Hillary was running was there was a question of like, should should you double down? Should it be like a double... Double, yeah. Yeah, female. I forget what... There was like a funny way of putting it or like a catchy way of putting it, but mm-hmm. like uh, like a, a female power ticket, basically. Right. And Hillary, I think, being the more cautious... Um, you know, she's kind of more cautious political yeah, soul. She she's like, I'm going to have, you know, this kind of like safe guy who, right. you know, is inoffensive and, you know, competent. And, you know, that's yeah. Tim Kaine. It's like, yeah. like it's Uber dad. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Totally. Like dork. Yeah. Um, but uh, I feel like Liz, were she to be the nominee in the environment that I think she will find herself in in 2020, uh, I think there would be a very legitimate case to be made for her to nominate somebody like Kamala. And be like, two women, a woman of color, we're going to do this. Man, that'd be great. Fuck everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, I think, hope you're right. I think it would animate the electorate. Yeah. And I think it would be like a, that's like a power move. It's yeah. like, you know what? I'm not going to moderate. I'm not going to like bring on like the safe, like old white man or whatever yeah. to make like, fuck it. Like we're going to come around the country and we're going to fix this shit. That'd be great. Right? <laughs> this is like a time capsule. We'll see. Yeah. And well, I don't know if she's going to win the nomination. I think she's got as good a chance as anybody. And I it think... seems more and more like she's going to run. She'll run. Okay. I think she'll run not only because I think she really wants to be president. Like there was a Rebecca Traster profile in the New York oh, magazine okay. recently. I'll look at that. That I felt like pretty much is, I mean, you don't do a Rebecca Traster New York oh, okay. magazine profile. You don't put yourself out there unless there's... She's, it's like you, politicians, I've seen enough of they this. They see it. They yeah. see the field and they sort of build up the um, brand recognition or whatever in, yeah. in advance of announcing their candidacy. But like, I think historically she feels like she must. Right. Not only because of what happened to Hillary and to women, but to what's happening in the country. Right. I she, think she feels a real duty. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. But I also too. think that having cut her teeth in the Senate for the last however many years yeah. and gotten like she's on the I think she's on Foreign Intelligence Committee and she's kind of like done. I think they've assigned her to committees or she's fought for committee assignments that would prepare one well right. for a run at the presidency. So she's got foreign policy chops and right. she's great on domestic policy, obviously, and financial policy. And right. she can talk shop and she knows how to box. Yeah. And what I've always noticed about Liz Warren is that um, she animates the opposition to a very strong degree. Yes, she does. And I think it's because they she scares the shit out of them. I bet you're right. Because yeah. she knows like how the sausage is made. Right. And she's not scared she's of them. She's not intimidated. And she's not intimidated. Yeah. I think that they worry about her for that reason. I think that's one of the reasons why Trump pokes her. A, because it animates his base, but I think it also like the the donor class and the Koch brothers and the... It makes them very nervous. Yeah, they go, oh shit. Like she, like, you know... She knows what's actually going on yeah. at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it'll be her or it'll be, I mean, I think Kamala's going to run. I think Joe Biden's going to run. I think you could see uh, Eric Garcetti run. Mm. I think you could see Mitch Landrew run. Like you could see Mayers run. Right. I think you could see Gavin. It's open. I think you could see Gavin Newsom run, even though he's just going to be two years into his governorship, if, you know, assuming he wins in, uh, in the fall. Right. 
you know, I could see him throwing his hat in just because of like, kind of like what we were saying about how Trump kind of blew up any rules. Right. Like, I think he'll say this is his prime year to win as possible. And like Gavin is an effective on the stump politician. Yeah, he's, he's And he's also got like this liberal street cred yeah. because he was like the first to the line the on gay, gay marriage and marriage, yeah. so we'll see. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I hope we survive that far. I hope that, um, justice is served. Yeah. And I hope that you, I mean, this is a long winded way of getting to this, but like, I hope that you keep writing the stories that you write, which I feel like in their way address a lot of the political tensions that we keep talking about. Right. And it's because embedded in those political tensions are the haves and the have nots, the, um, the ways that people deal with their suffering. Right. Uh, you know, all of these things are tangled up with politics. And I think that I feel a great degree of, uh, I feel, I feel, um, very similarly to you in terms of how I relate to, um, the elements of the country that I disagree with because I'm related to many of them. And I know how that can feed creative work and I know how much, brain space it occupies can't get away from it you know yeah well i promise you i'll keep writing because i don't know what else to do with myself yeah right i I feel like very safe that you're going to keep making books and i'll keep reading (laughs) yeah that's what gives me solace well it's really great to see you it's really great to see you too. thanks Thanks. for for trucking over here my Uh, pleasure congrats on the book and i wish you well thank you Okay, that's Victoria Patterson. Her book is called The Secret Habit of Sorrow. It's a story collection. Excuse me. It's a story collection available from Counterpoint Press. You can find her online. She's got a website. It is, uh, I believe it's victoriapatterson.com. I'll get verification on that. Her Twitter handle is at vpatterson1269. At vpatterson1269. And her website is indeed victoriapatterson.com. One more time. The book is called The Secret Habit of Sorrow. Go get your copy right now. Literally order it right now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me letters at otherpplpod. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at otherppl. If you want to get the app, that's a great way to listen. The Other People app, the official app of this podcast, is free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Uh, I should say, Amber Tamblin talked about uh, Louis C.K. I know we just, you know, I just talked to Victoria Patterson, but I would be remiss if if I did not mention this uh, comment that Amber made about Louis C.K. and how he was making a good move by just going away. And then, of course, like just like three or four or five days later, it is revealed that he dropped into a comedy club in New York and is trying to mount some kind of comeback. I do feel a sense of clarity on him because I was such a fan of his. I, he made me laugh. I liked his show. I, you know, I have a real soft spot, uh, soft spot for comedians. I told this to Amber. So I felt this, a deep wound, like a real sense of betrayal, you know, just because there was fandom involved. And this notion that he can just drop in unannounced like, fuck that guy. You gotta get your head checked, Louie. That was a bad move. I thought that... I, like, I actually was still holding out hope that he was at least smart enough and that he would have people around him who could sit him down and be like, dude, get some help. 
get some fucking help. Do some work on yourself and then come back and be like a famous comedian or something. Um, or not, you know what I'm saying? Like, like just first do what's right. Give, uh, your victims most of your money because they owe that you, you owe it to them. You ruined their careers. You tried to blackball them and, and, uh, silence them. And you jerked off in front of them and they cornered them in hotel rooms. Like that's seriously fucked up. You don't get a pass on that. There's gotta be a price. You know, most people would go to prison for that sort of shit. So I feel strongly about that one. <laughs> like I'm all about, uh, forgiveness and redemption, but you have to be worthy of it and to just show up and just do a comedy set. First of all, you show up in the comedy room, in the comedy cellar. You don't know who the audience is. You don't know if there are women in that audience who have, uh, been victimized, you know, like it should be offensive to men or women who of conscience, but like, especially people who might be sensitive to those issues to suddenly see you standing there getting an ovation. You know, it's all so fucking sickening and weird. So I have strong feelings about that. Louie, if you're listening, <laughs> like, please, man, get some help and, and just be quiet. You're rich. Just go work on yourself. And if you're ever going to do comedy again, it should definitely be uh, a big, long set with you and your behavior and your problems as the butt of the joke for the hour, you know, like you got to exercise that shit in an honest way. If you're ever going to be able to make art in public again, I don't even know exactly how that's going to look, but I would imagine that's got to be some part of it. Anyway, I'm, I'm talking. The music ended like five minutes ago. 